Hello, welcome to Kill Your Silos, the only show about operations that dares to ask the fundamental question at the heart of every operator's mind, which is there must be a better way to do this shit. And I'm here to prove to you that there is indeed a better way and it's called revenue operations. Each episode, I will talk to one of the titans of revenue operations or the revenue space. I use the word titan loosely because none of us know what we're doing yet. Today, I'll be speaking with Todd Capone, keynote speaker, author, uh, someone's books who I have read, all around smart sales, marketing, an operation person, someone you should follow on LinkedIn because you say really interesting and thought-provoking uh, stuff. Todd, I'm so excited to speak to you today about revenue operations and how that's fit into your world and the history of sales because I know that you are a big sales sales nut. Um, so thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because it's a little bit different than the traditional, like, give us some tips, right? I yeah. mean, re revenue operations is a cool category and I love to nerd out on it. Good. Let's do it. Um, you know, so to start there, because I think everyone has their own definition, then I definitely have my own definition of RevOps. Um, and we're building, you know, our organization around it and being the first revenue operations company that helps others transform. But I think it's always important when we have a guest on the show, to, um, especially one that has the history that you have. What is revenue operations to you? What does it mean? Well, you know, it started with this whole idea. You know, the, the title chief revenue officer is a fairly recent kind of all of a sudden, like it's the trendy cool thing, like all the cool kids are doing it. And um, I got to be a chief revenue officer in my last role, right, which was all about how do we look upon the whole customer journey from the time that they're first touched from marketing and sales development outreach all the way to their sixth, seventh renewal that they've done with our products, services, and technology. And so to oversee that whole thing and to have a holistic view across it, that also needs to be a part of the way that you think operationally and to make sure that people are incentivized consistently across that entire path so that there's not the, uh, you know, people with different, you know, incentives going on, but also thinking about the processes, uh, the whole journey and, and like one person or a group of people that can look upon that. So that's what I had in my last role as the chief revenue officer of a company in Chicago called Power Reviews is, uh, you know, my head of operations was a revenue ops person, not just a sales ops person and right. was assisting with client success, sales, marketing, business development, that, that whole journey. And so that's the way I look upon it. Revenue ops is understanding the entire customer journey and having oversight to the processes and the means by which we build a business around those in a consistent way. Since you've done that job and you had, you know, you know, probably at the time, maybe it was called sales ops. I can imagine a lot of sales ops people. Yes. I always say that sales operations, there's two flavors. There's the administrator who is a sales operator. And then there is someone who was already doing RevOps before that term really uh, became synonymous with uh, unifying across your customer operations, right? Yeah. Um, the question I have for you is nobody in the history of me talking to them on this show, in sales cycles that go nimbly, and you know, on panels has ever shook their head and go, went, oh no, we don't want this unified view across the customer. We don't want to be customer centric. No one really says that. So then why is it so hard in an organization from your personal experience to deliver on you know that idea man and i think it probably gets more difficult now that we're in the environment that we're in where everybody's remote i mean for us you know at the beginning everything was a, a toss over the the silo right so 
uh, the biggest issue that we had is there was a lack of understanding between sales and client success. So sales would just jam the deal in and then implementation would be like, all right, thanks for this little sandwich of shit that you just gave us. We're going to try to make it work. And then client success, I used to equate to this idea of an emergency room technician, right? Where the, the patient has come to them and is in dire straits and client success is like, all right, save them. Like, good mm -hmm. luck. Like get out the paddles. And, and so just thinking about it from that perspective, obviously first year experience is the key to whether a customer is going to stay or not, going to buy more or not, and is going to be an advocate for us to their friends. And so that was the argument from the right from the get-go is we need client success to be like your uh, well-check doctors, not like your emergency room technicians. Mm. And how do we optimize that? And it starts with having oversight into all of those little pieces. Now, like when I say that we're all remote now, one of the things that we did right away before we even made that formal switch to having ro uh, revenue oversight is we started to sit the selling salespeople with our client success people. We I intertwined agree. them so they could hear each other, they could empathize. And then we started to realize, gosh, there's some process improvements uh, that we could do to just optimize this whole process. And then we started to see these ideas and, and then started to hear about this chief revenue officer type of role, which is when I got elected that. And to your point, yeah, my sales ops guy was called sales ops. Mm -hmm. But as we got deeper into this, the client success team was like, gosh, we could really use John's help. And then the marketing team was like, hey, do you mind if I do a one-on-one -on -one with your sales ops person? And it all of a sudden became this actualization that it needed to be thought about from a revenue operations perspective and not just a sales ops spot. Did you see revenue change with that as that mindset became more adopted across those front end applications of the revenue team? You know, so I consider marketing, sales, and customer success to be, you know, the people who are interacting in the front line with your customer, right? And they're touching your customer. And I think of the operators behind the scenes, the ones that are scaling that process, the directors, the boom mic operators, to use an analogy that I like, who are directing and making sure all those things can happen at scale. Did, did you see revenue increase reorganization or a, or a decrease in friction of you know getting revenue when everyone started to have this more holistic uh, view? This is just me being curious. Yeah, absolutely. We saw it more in terms of um, upsell, cross-sell, and renewal rates. So our for, we had a, a big issue with first-year churn mm -hmm. um, because here, I'm going to give you a, a weird analogy, but um, you know, there was a, a, this was a couple of months ago. I was on LinkedIn, I'm scrolling along, and I see this article that talks about the idea that uh, customer experience is everything, right? Like that's the next mountain that we all, like if, if we're yeah. going to have successful businesses, we not only need to create great customer experiences, but legendary, right? And I'm like, right. all right, that's a good argument. I get it. I did a little search. I found like five other articles that said the exact same thing. And then I went out. Uh, my, my stepdaughter, who was turning 16, we were doing a kind of a COVID-friendly birthday party for her for her 16th birthday. And she wanted uh, me to go and get like a vegetable tray and fruit tray and ranch dress. She loves ranch dressing. And so I went to Costco. And so again, fresh in my mind, this whole customer experience is like, we got to create legendary experiences. I go there, I walk in. First thing you see is ranch dressing, right? But you can't just buy a little ranch you got to buy 80 fluid ounces, which is two thirds of the way to a gallon. I'm yep. like, God, that, 
And then I turn around, like, if you can't buy one toothbrush, you got to buy 10. And as I'm checking out, they're basically just taking my stuff and like whipping it into my cart. There's no bagging. And then I get done with that. I go to the exit and there's a woman there checking my receipt to make sure that I didn't steal anything. And I'm like, that's not a legendary experience yet. Costco is the number four retailer in the U.S. Once again, Ikea, same thing. There's a, a restaurant here in Chicago called the Wiener Circle, where the people behind the counter notoriously rip you up, like tear you up. They are so offensive to you as you walk in and order a hot dog. Right. And I know that yet on a, a Friday night after a Cubs game, you'll see the line down the street. Like people can't wait. My point being that. Our responsibility as an organization, always marketing sales is about setting proper expectations, setting them accurate and consistently meeting them. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not about, you know, like, let's obviously we don't want to over promise and under deliver that sucks, but that's what our salespeople were doing. Mm -hmm. We also don't want to under promise and over deliver consistently because you'll create a short term satisfaction spike, but over time, it's really a form of lying if you're consistently under uh, promising and over delivering, but your customers will do something I like to call expectation inflation, which is when you set an expectation and they know that you're constantly uh, under um, committing, they're going to actually inflate what you say and you'll never be able to keep up. Right. Yep. My point right. there being is when we consistently set expectations and meet them, that is when customers stay buy more and advocate on our behalf. The fundamental thing I hate hearing in business, and if you're on LinkedIn for 15 minutes, you'll see this thing everywhere, is alignment internally. Because I feel like like your customer doesn't care if your company is dysfunctional, if they get exactly what they want out of it without them having to step over the line for you. Um, and I think that you know things like focusing on the customer, things like creating revenue and revenue impact for an organization sort of automatically aligns everyone because you're creating the North Star for, for that part of the organization, yeah. for that flywheel. How do you feel about it? Does that, does that ring true to you? 100%. As a matter of fact, it's uh, something I've been researching a lot lately myself. And it's this idea that, you know, we as human beings, we're biased by the journey. Meaning our perception of the reward is biased by the journey to get there. Yep. For example, right around the holidays, my wife and I, we were out with our kids, I've got a nine and eight year old. And I don't know if you've got a like the Culver's around where you live, yep. but um, you know, they've got the, the frozen custard and the butter burgers. The custard is pretty fantastic. Uh, the point being we're out where my wife's like, Hey, let's go get some ice cream. And the kids are like, ice cream, let's go to Culver's. I'm like, all right, cool. So we pull into the Culver's parking lot and the line for the drive-through is 15 cars long. And we're just like, ah, oh. Right. And then on the other side, there's a bunch of people still waiting for their food. We can see them. They got these little stickers on their side view mirrors. And so we get into the line. But my nine year old immediately is like, can we just go home? Like, we don't we don't need the ice cream that bad. And my yeah. eight year old's like, yeah, let's go home. I want to play Minecraft. And yeah. so it's ice cream. It's not even ice cream. It's frozen custard, which is like on a different level. Yeah. And our kids chose the status quo not because they didn't think it was going to be great. It's because the journey was looking to be unexpectedly difficult and not worth it. As a result, the reward looked less sweet. Now, we all do this. When we get into something, we're like, yeah, I want that. But the journey to get it and to maximize the benefits, if we start to see that it's unexpectedly difficult, it's a mountain that we're just not prepared to climb, we're actually going to 
bias our own perception of that reward and go, it's not that important, but we'll right. prioritize it. So in every organization, we really need to take a very close look at what are the things that we do for the customer on their journey that create the impression that it's 15 cars in the drive-through, right? Um, we want it, we, we've got to remove friction and make sure that those things that are in the way are not just self-serving, right? And if they are, we got to figure out a way to get rid of it and create the impression for the buyer that there's one or two cars in the drive-through, which is fine. I expect that. And as a result, everybody's going to be happy because we're going to get that reward we were looking for. I think that's such a perfect like simplified example of the experience, you know, that we're always weighing out the urgency and importance of what we want versus the friction to get it. Exactly. That's exactly right. There was a study that um, the corporate executive board did back in 2017. It's now Gartner that looked at like in a consensus buying process, like what, do, what are the buyers actually spending their time doing? And what they found was that only 39% of the time was spent talking to you, your competitors, or their internal buying groups. That 61% was spent doing other stuff. And that other stuff was things like back-channeling you, talking to references, reading analyst reports. If, if you're in the tech space, it's going to G2s and the trust radius. They're even reading Glassdoor reviews, right? They're doing the homework in the background because they're not getting that from you. Right. And that 61% is friction in the buying journey, right? Yep. I believe that that 61% is also not a foregone conclusion. It was like, you know, Gartner's, uh, you know, their, their summary was, we've got to recognize that they're going to spend this time. I'm like, no, they, we actually have to recognize that we're not arming the buyers to be able to predict what their experience is going to be like by just feeding our customers, we're perfect and they suck type speech. Right. And exactly. as a result, we're driving them to do more homework. They they dictate customer behavior as this is where we're at. And I always go, that doesn't make sense because maybe customers in this age where we are would do that. Maybe they would go to Glassdoor G2 and check something. But if you are in the buying experience telling them exactly what they're going to go find and then they go find it, not only have you closed uh, close the gap before it even happened. Now you're validating your credibility and increasing your trust with the customer exactly. exponentially that now you're on a whole different plat you know, plateau with that customer, which is, wow, this person told me exactly what it's like. And I went and did my own independent research and it was exactly like what that's, this person told me. That's the whole concept of the book. And the, what had happened was after I discovered that, and again, the discovery was based on the idea that, you know, we all look at reviews today Nobody doesn't. Before you buy something you haven't bought before, that's of medium to high consideration. But the amazing thing to me was that 85% of us read the negative reviews first. Correct. You skip past the fives and go right to the fours, threes, twos, and ones. And that a product that has an average review score between a four, two, and a four, five will sell at a higher conversion rate than any other review score, including a perfect five. The, right. the first engagement that I had right after I'd been like, wait, I wonder if that applies to human to human selling it was exactly that I got sucked into a circumstance where I wasn't prepared to pre uh, present. There were seven people on the client side that were like waiting for me. And I was like, you know what, before I start, I'm just going to lay the cards face up on the table and see where this goes. And I basically sold on behalf of the competitor and told yep. them, hey, listen, before I start, here's something that they're better at than us that we don't have. 
it's not even on our roadmap. As a matter of fact, we hadn't even contemplated it. And if that's going to be important, can we address that now before you invest a bunch of time looking at us and you write an RFP and then we get on a plane and fly here to New York and do a full dog and pony? And they were like, really? And, and they ended up, instead of what was typically a four to six month sales process, they literally threw out the competitor and made the decision for us in 10 days. What's some of your most unpopular controversial opinions when it comes to GTM strategies like that? Oh man, I have so many. Um, I, like, I don't even know where to begin. Um, you know, there's a couple. Uh, one of them is that we were talking about data and, you know, the fact that like that whole 61% thing. Yep. One of the things that I've been really banging on lately is this idea that uh, when we look at stats and averages, I, I used to do this wrong myself, but one of the things that I used to do wrong was I would look at my sales team and say, hey, listen, we close about 25 to 30% of our qualified opportunities. So I need everybody to focus on having 4X their pipeline and quota at any one time. Yeah. After the research I've done now and really thinking about that, that's stupid. Like that's, that's really dumb. You know, I'm focused on the wrong thing. If we get 4X our pipeline and quota, uh, our 4X our quota in pipeline and we measure to that, then everybody runs out and fills their pipeline with 4X of crap. Yep. What, what, I, what we all need to do is do a much better job by using what you just talked about and embracing transparency and qualifying in or out deals faster and really incentivizing reps to focus on their win rates and focus on the fact that we're spending less time on deals that we're going to lose anyway. And how do we get reps to lose fast? If you're going to lose, get out of there as quickly as possible. And a lot of that happens by the, you know, cards face up, setting proper expectations, uh, being transparent and telling the customer, Hey, this is what we're not great at. This is what a competitor may do better than here's some of the, the, potholes that we might hit along the process. And if you're cool with that, here's what you're going to love. Let's take a quick turn and let's let's break to play a little bit of a game. Uh, this is a Kiss, Mary Kill. I don't know if you've ever played this in your life. Uh, I don't think I have. So, so I'm going to give you a topic and okay. I'm going to give you three items and you're going to kiss one, you're going to marry one, uh, and then you're going to kill one. In this example, uh, we're going to start with the category of team. So this is about teams. And so uh, it's one-on-one, all-hands-call team meeting. Which one are you going to kiss, marry, and kill? All right, I'm writing it down. So one-on-one, all-hands, and then a team meeting. Yep. Um, well, I mean, I would uh, absolutely marry the one-on-one, right? I, uh, You know, th- there's an interesting study that shows that um, even at its best, there's only in the range of about 30 to 40% of, of salespeople are ever truly engaged. Yep. And, and if we think that variable compensation is the driver of like, if, if we, if we think that reps are coin operated, you're right. If you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And right. most of our one-on-ones are focused on forecasting and uh, we're not really understanding what the true drivers are of intrinsic motivation. And instead we just use extrinsic as the way to drive behavior. The result is less engaged reps that don't perform as well and don't stay as long. And so I would absolutely marry, uh, I'm going out of order, but the, the one-on-ones, you just gotta get really good at those. If you're a sales leader, you gotta figure out 
how to optimize that. It's not just a forecast review and deal strategy. Right. I, I think the, um, in fact, that's only like 10.8, like you can only impact then the things that you are talking about, even if you were the most, um, uh, amazing sales coach. And even if the most amazing sales strategy coach, you're only going to talk, you you know, if you're one-on-one 30 minutes, you're going to influence two deals versus if you actually, uh, lean in with empathy and teach them some of those soft skills and some of those clinical skills you were talking about, yeah. you're going to impact their entire deal cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Now I would kiss, uh, the team meetings. And the reason is one of the things that I also see people get wrong a lot is this idea of, um, stoning the person that loses the deal. Mm-hmm. And I, what we started doing is we started celebrating losses and we would do that in team meetings and we would celebrate it for the effort and celebrate it for any lessons that we can learn, which would help everybody else lose a little less often. And those, those team meetings were fun. That's how we built family. That's how we built packs. That's how we built security. That's how we felt comfortable in our skin in asking the dumb questions and getting better as a team. And so that those team meetings, man, those were almost as valuable as the one-on-ones. That's why I would just go a layer down. And then, you know, I would kill the all hands um, because I just felt like that was just a, a ceremony in, in monthly back padding. Yep. I never really felt like we were coming together. You'd always see like somebody presenting something and half of the audience would be like, yeah. And half of the audience would be like, that guy's a jerk. Like, I, I don't know. Like the all hands meetings to me, just that, They've never been configured in a way that really drives that team feel and that like we're all in this together. Yeah, and they're so, always a readout more than anything, especially. Exactly. Uh, next uh, category, work from home. Okay, so uh, work from home. The items are texting, calling, or email. Kiss, marry, kill. <laughs> oh, gosh. And are you thinking about it from a work perspective or a prospecting perspective, or is there any perspective? I'm, I'm not thinking from a Todd perspective. Wow. Okay. All right. So work from home, text, calling, or email. That's a really good one. Um, so for me, uh, email is my Mary. Oh, wow. Because uh, okay. I, I just feel like, um, again, if you keep it short, you've got the flexibility. You can engage that way. Gosh, you know what, though? Man, text is really good, though, too. Like, I, I mean, literally, as we're sitting here, my phone's lighting up with people and we can we can have a quick exchange. Yeah. Although there is an expectation that you're going to be responsive to it, which is the downside. So I'm going to I'm going to kiss the text. I'm going to marry the email. And unfortunately, I'm going to kill the call, which I know sounds crazy. But an email <laughs> allows me to digest and respond on my time. So one question I have about the email and the text mm-hmm. um, which I think, you know, you and I, um, there's some age difference, but for a lot of people, text is asynchronous. They don't reply to it, but I feel the same pressure if I get a text message to reply almost instantaneously. Yeah. Um, right. And it's sitting there. And then if I, if I see it and I don't reply, sometimes I'll forget it's there. Yep. And like email for me. So think about in my last role, and I can imagine this is how you are as a CRO of a fast growing company, like at power reviews, I was getting a hundred to 150 emails a week. Yep. I was in 30 to 35 meetings per week, right? And so I could uh, digest, and I, I never answered a cold call. I, yep. I think it's an important element as long as people get good at leaving very short, brief voicemails that are about value to me in a personalized way and not about how awesome you are. Yep. Um, so it's got to play a role. 
But email to me was the thing that I could control. I could see the subject line plus the first 10 words. And I would judge based on that, whether that email was there to help me or to sell me. Mm-hmm. If it was there to sell me. It usually started with, I wanted to, or I was just, or one of those types of things. So select all delete on those. And yeah. even if the, it said, I wanted to give you a million dollars, I would never get to it because yeah. I wanted to it was at the beginning. I could see like the ones that were personalized and valuable stood out like, like it was highlighted, like a beacon in the night. Correct. And so I would engage with those. I would be able to get through a hundred of them on my half an hour uh, train ride home. And it was like just a, a thing that I can control. I, I could see if it was there to, um, like my priorities in my email inbox were always, is it have to do with my team, my customers or my prospects? Those are one, two, and three. Unknown commercial or potential vendors were like number a hundred on the list. And as a result, I could get through it. I could control it. I could own it. I could respond in my time. And then it almost, I know people say this is bad, but it almost came like a to-do list. Yep. Like I said, I text, I really like the fact that I can interact a little bit on my time to the things that I want. The phone, it requires an actual investment in more time. There's the small talk. If I'm trying to be efficient with my day, I would unfortunately, although it's great to hear people's voices and to make those connections, there's just not enough time in the day to make that uh, take over for one of the other. What's so annoying about calls is is if I choose to get on one and then when I do get on some of those, like let's say someone did send a good email, often – even after they sent a good email, their their actual phone conversation with me was like as if my time wasn't valuable exactly. at all. And it, I'm like, this is such a disconnect from the value-based way that you emailed me because I think so many people are teaching value-based emailing. And because people are connecting less and less via the phone, it's almost disappointing when I get on the phone with these people. Yes. Um, so that's really interesting. Pop culture is the next category. Okay. Um, 80s, 90s, 2000s pop culture. Um, gosh, I find, so my, my stepdaughter is 16 and she is really into eighties pop culture because of stranger things. Yep. And, uh, I, I love the the show stranger things. I just find that culture. Like, what were we thinking? Like, that's yeah. crazy. But yeah. then in the, the, uh, and then in the, uh, I guess it was the late eighties. I mean, I had a mullet, right? <laughs> like it was, I graduated from high school in 89, if you want to age me. Mm-hmm. Um, and like my, my high school senior picture I had a mullet and a black eye. Like it's, the, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like one of my buddies and I, we were wrestling and he, he accidentally cold cocked me. Yeah. Um, so like, I, I don't know. I look back at that and go, how did I get through the eighties? Um, man, I, cause I can't even think of what pop culture was like in the two thousands. Right. I mean, it was just like, what was, what was kind of the cool stuff for me? Like my music tastes, uh, that genre, I would marry the nineties. Um, like I'm a huge fan of, like, I kind of grew up loving music from a grunge perspective. So Nirvana, uh, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, like that's my, that's my jam. And that's like, that's core nineties. So definitely Mary. Um, I, I would probably have to, gosh, the the eighties, man, I wouldn't want to kill it, but I might, I might, (laughs) but again, I mean, there were a lot of uh, slasher flicks in the eighties. So I think killing eighties might be the most appropriate move here. 
Yeah, although, you know what? I think I'm going to kill the 2000s because I can't even remember what like what yeah, was unique I think it was about like, it? You know, Britney Spears and the return I'll of harmonized music. Get rid of it. Like, yeah, let's let's uh, kiss the '80s because I think there yeah, are it's so some easy when you look it. through it, the lens of music and what the pop culture was. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Yeah. Uh, last one. Uh, this is the mystery category and is okay. going to out you for a weirdo. So let's see what what you answer. <laughs> Alien ghost psychics. Alien ghost psychics. Um, all right, so um, man, that's a really hard one. Um, <laughs> you got to marry one of those things. Yeah, I mean, I find uh, uh, psychics to be fascinating. I don't believe it though. Yeah. Um, so I might kiss the psychic because I just I think it's fascinating the way they do it. It's almost like a magician. Like you go to yes. the magic show and you're just like, that was freaking cool. I know it's a trick, but it's. Yeah, a, I know it's I'm being tricked somehow, but like yeah. there's there's something going on there, and I want to know what it is. Um, like alien and ghost, alien and ghost. Um, yeah, I would probably have to kiss the alien, or I'm sorry, marry the alien and kill the ghost. Yeah, um, well, they're already dead. No harm done. Oh, that that's true. That's a good point. Yes, <laughs> I, I don't know. I I find that um, I, I just can't get over the idea that we're the only place in this insane galaxy that happens to have life. Like, I just, I think that that's there and I can't wait for us to finally figure out what it looks like. I don't know if it's going to be intelligent life or even more intelligent, or if it's just going to be like gnats, but I, I'm dying for that. Like, I think that's going to be really cool when we finally figure that out. So I'm going to go with, uh, Do you think Mary. that if we did find alien gnats, like truly on another planet, it's life. Do you think we would do what we do as humans to animals on our planet and just like capture them and bring them back and put them in a zoo kind of situation? <laughs> yeah, I, we might, we might, although, I mean, this whole COVID thing kind of freaks me out about bringing anything from anywhere. <laughs> Cause like, you just don't know what's going to come out of that. Um, like, I mean, it just can completely throw us off the rails when we start experimenting where we shouldn't. Yeah. I, I just like, I have a hard time believing that aliens have visited us though. Yeah, uh, and and yeah. the reason why is if you're gonna make that trek here, why would you be like fly over and go? Oh, that's cool, and Here's then go the all the way back. I think that aliens never visit us is because have you ever seen a tourist? They they stand out like nobody, like nobody. Exactly. <laughs> that's I, don't true. Think, I don't think you can hide. Like, why yeah. would you come to a place and not gawk in the middle of the street? I mean, exactly. Thing would do that. That's right. Oh, there's the joke though about like whether they would come here and see human beings and go, oh, that's the intelligent life, but then see them following their dog with a bag of poop and yeah. go, maybe it's the dogs. Like I just I think that part's kind of funny. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea. All right, two more legitimate questions. We have about five to seven minutes left. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things that I talk a lot about, and I'm always interested in getting people's perspective on, and and the reason I talk about this is my background is in marketing. And in marketing, we talk a lot about the customer experience. And when people, you know, draw that on a board, it usually looks like this system or this person or this email gets handed off to this thing. It's very clinical internally to the organization. And I started using this term called buying journey to say, no, 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 I don't care about what happens inside the organization. Tell me what your customer who's an enterprise customer experiences. Do you think there's a difference between customer journey and buying experience and, you know, all these sort of different, you know, industry jargon terms, or do you view them all as the same thing? Yeah. You know, I heard this uh, analogy last week that I thought was kind of interesting. I haven't shared this at all yet, but it's like um, there's a difference between having uh, an understanding of and actually experiencing something. Mm -hmm. And the analogy was 
uh, imagine that you are on a boat in rough seas and the person next to you is so sick that they're throwing up. Now, having an understanding of what that's like is kind of like having a sympathy for it. Like, oh yeah, I've yep. been there, that sucks. Having true empathy is that you are throwing up with them, yeah. <laughs> right? Yep. And so like, that's that's the difference to me is like, how are we thinking about this? One of the other controversial things that I've been talking a little bit about lately is like when I look at companies in their sales stages, um, everybody talks about the buying journey and the buying experience and like, how do we do that? But then when it comes to their forecasting and the way that they measure where they are, every stage is all about what the rep is doing. Like right. we got the discovery stage and then the demo stage and then the pr presentation stage and the proposal stage. And the, like, that's what we're doing. Like, that's not what buyers do. Buyers go through a three-stage journey, right? They decide whether or not their status quo is worth changing. They then decide, well, should I do it with Go Nimbly or do something else? And then they decide, should I do this now or can I wait? Correct. Right? Like that's yep. the buying journey and the way that we need to be start, like at the highest level. And then true empathy is, have we been through that process ourselves so that we can truly understand what it's like and see what the bad things and the good things are. And I don't think most of us have ever done that. And again, the language that we use within sales ops and forecasting typically doesn't reflect an understanding of what the customer's going through anyway. Not at all. You know, I think one of the, you know, ABM is a model that I believe in to capture, you know, enterprise level grade accounts. You need to swarm them. You need to think about them holistically. But one of the best things that ABM created that not enough people have talked about is that you can actually look at the engagement of wins that you have and how did that person engage with you to get to that place and you can start to see trends that have nothing to do with if they are you know the things that you segment customers on right like they you you'll see these kind of trends that start emerging and, and we use a design thinking uh, practice to do this but you'll see emergent trends that show you Oh, our enterprise customers engage like this. This is how they engage. This is what the first call engagement looks like. And there's a lot of similarities between those people because they are, they are, you know, going through the same experience, so to speak. Now there's nuance and context in there that you need to be empathetic to. But I think we do segmentation so much on data and how we want customers to behave and not actually um, the way that they actually engage with our product, right? Um, and I think that's something that we should look at a little bit more, which is do some analysis of when you won, track it all the way back and go, what were the engagement points like? Um, and, and through that process, we found that customers tend to behave similarly, have same value outlooks. So if you know their first experience was you know this kind of email that you sent out, and then they had this experience where they went onto the website and they did this thing, and then they did this other thing, you can actually find these similarities that equate to dollar amounts. And, and that's a really um, interesting way to look at and understand your buying experience. The problem is that so many people are not tracking any actual customer engagement. It, you know, they have Google Analytics or something like that, but they're not actually tracking it and surfacing it. Instead, what they rely on is the sales reps' actions to dictate what the customer has just done. Yeah, one of the things that we took down to another layer, I was the VP of sales of a company, this was like 13 years ago, where we weren't thinking about that. We were thinking more about what I'd like to call extreme firmographic focus, mm -hmm. where we, our solutions could address anybody who was in manufacturing back then. Yep. So you made planes, trains, cars, tractors, whatever, didn't matter. But we had a theory that, hey, our 
customers, we've got a couple of customers in the aerospace industry that are wildly successful. So for the next six weeks, I want all of our reps to look at their account list and go aerospace is number one, two, and three this week and next week and the week after and marketing, let's rally around aerospace. Let's get everybody understanding the case studies. It, confidence is contagious. Yeah. When we uh, are talking to somebody who's confident, what happens is that part of our brain actually lights up and we become more confident as a result. If your reps in a single day are talking to a manufacturer, an oil gas company, a car manufacturer and a plane, like they can't possibly be the height of confidence. And so like, let's focus on aerospace for six weeks. What we did is we did that. We rallied the whole company around it. We got Boeing, we got Cessna, we got Gulfstream, and then we slowly moved out from there. So yeah. we said, all right, what's close to it? And my Chicago rep was like, uh, heavy manufacturing. So let's go after Caterpillar and Deer. My yep. Dallas rep was like, oil and gas. Let's go after Schlumberger and Halliburton. And we just went slowly out. And that's how we exploded with growth because it was that empathy. It was that understanding what is the customer journey in that space. And then it was also the confidence that we built because we became experts in our own success as it related to those customers, which came across in a trust building and a, hey, this person really gets me and removes friction from the buying journey almost overnight. Yeah, I mean, that's really, really powerful advice. Last question. Um, so we do this bit at the end of, of the episodes now where we're gonna put up some advice in a marquee, it's gonna appear above my head or some kind of post-production magic. So the question is, if you had the chance to share one sentence, RevOps related, RevOps not related, doesn't matter, with the world on a giant marquee and uh, what would it be? Yeah, well, I'm going to give you one that I normally say, but I'm going to roll you into one that I love even better. So, you know, with the book, I always talk about this idea that transparency sells better than perfection, right? Like that's it. And because of the proliferation of reviews and feedback, now we got to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. But as I'm a sales history nerd, like I've got books all around me from the early 1900s. That's my jam. I, like I read sales books from hundreds of like a hundred plus years ago. And then I read behavioral science research. Like that's my thing. Yep. Um, but there was a, there was a quote from an author named Arthur Dunn. And I think this was 1919. He was quoted as saying, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. And I was just like, it's freaking brilliant. I love that. If the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. And it's you like, know, I love that. But if that was on a marquee, someone might be think that you're inviting them into a church. <laughs> That's true. So maybe we could go back with the transparency sells better than perfection. But that quote, like no, this guy, it. Arthur Dunn, Arthur Dunn goes on a rant about like his understanding of what the truth means in a sales capacity. It is written. So like there's, I, I mean, I wrote a book. It, it was, it did great. I can't, there, I don't see anybody that can write to this level of depth. It was so awesome. I was just like, that is beautiful. So what, I, I what love that. What is the name that. of the book? What, what is um, the name? I think it's called uh, Scientific Selling and Advertising. Man, and there, there's a lot of wackiness in it. Um, but like that part, it's pretty much the first chapter. He goes into this whole preach about the truth. And you'll see that from the early 1900s, salespeople they, they embraced honesty and trust. They, they weren't only trusted and respected, but they were admired. Yeah, I mean, there was someone who wasn't. And you I mean, we, snake oil salesman is a term. That's from the late 1800s, sales, yeah, right? used by salespeople to discredit people who weren't, you know, weren't leading with truth and honesty, I think, in a, a lot of ways. Well, I'll tell you one last thing on that. So 
you know, if you look back in the, the mid 1910s and actually 1916 specifically, the U.S. was in the middle of uh, World War One. And what was Woodrow Wilson, our president, doing? He was addressing 3,000 salespeople at the World Sales Congress in Detroit, Michigan, because he believed that salespeople were the key between success and failure for us as a country. Meaning wow. salespeople putting the right products in the right company's hands at the right time was all like, it's what we needed for the whole com country to flourish. And yeah. because there was a huge opportunity, the industrial revolution was going on and yeah. it was salespeople that were the cog. And I think we've lost sight of that, that, hey, by selling the right things to the right companies at the right time, we're making the whole better, which in turn makes us better. And instead, we've kind of lost our face with a lot of technologies yes. and and put ourselves first. And, and basically, this unquenchable thirst for scale has kind of ruined the sales profession. But I still think there's time to get it back. And it starts with, you know, the truth. It starts with transparency, selling better than perfection. Thank you so much, Todd. I, I learned so much in this conversation. I enjoyed it immensely. Um, where can people find you? And, and I mean, what, what, what key action are you promoting in this, in this cast? Yeah, I, guys, I'm hard not to find, almost annoyingly so uh, right now. But you can go to toddcaponi.com. Um, I've got a blog there that I share a lot of my nonsense. Or feel free to connect or uh, follow me on LinkedIn. If you do connect, just let me know that you heard me here. And I will happily accept. And uh, again, if, I'd love to be a resource for people if, uh, if I can be. So thanks. thank you, Todd. Until next time, it was great having you. And I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, man. Bye.